Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host this time around, just a regular guy, regular co-host, Dean Dilloff. And I'm your other co-host, who's definitely a regular person and not the Elden Lord, <laughs> Matt Bernico. That's right. Just kidding. I am the Elden Lord. I want, I'm springing that on you right now. Uh, I did it. I beat uh, the big bad guy and uh feeling good about my life feeling really powerful you should i can't wait to go to the big convocation where you throw your elden crown into the air and get your big diploma <laughs> at the end yeah that's how it goes in the game there's a big cut scene where the dragon knights you as the king and it's great people love it that's why people love this game is because of this big end cut scene of the dragon right right and you get to put just have your underwear on under the graduation robe and everything yeah that's the cool thing about it um so i beat the game and now I'm, i immediately made a new character um because i'm not going to play as my old character anymore i'm i'm past it i'm putting childish things mm-hmm. away just like the saint paul yeah, that's right exactly it's like saint paul and my new character uh is entire is blue <laughs> completely and i named him sonic so pretty cool <laughs> that is pretty cool uh maybe is there any kind of like ability you can get where you could be like one of the blue men and kind of just shoot some magic like noodles out of your chest or something like that Okay, so there is a there is a weapon in the game that's like a giant horn that blows bubbles. <laughs> okay, sure. And that's pretty similar if you it's think about close. it to the blue to the blooming. Yeah, you need three of them to walk around, and maybe you could get some uh, some PVC pipes or something in there. There's a great uh, shield in the game that is just a giant turtle shell, and um, some people make their characters completely green, <laughs> and uh, they are Ninja Turtles, and that's pretty funny. So I could do that with a blooming. I don't know. I like that. People have done weirder ones. Yeah, that sounds yeah, pretty I, good. I, me too. Um, the Elden Blue Man sounds like a pretty good game theme altogether. (laughs) I think you're right. I think that it's a build that no one's been, uh, daring enough to try yet. And now I'm here on the scene and I'm going to do it. That's right. And as longtime listeners to this podcast will know, (laughs) the Blue Men do have a bizarre connection to the Christian left. So trust me, we, we have somehow found a way into our niche content already, um, I forget what the what the uh, connection is. Something about like I don't know one like some theologian Walter Wink or somebody I forget who it is. Like yeah, it's like one of his descendants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In some way, who knows what it is? It's a son or a nephew or something out there. Anyway, you can go find it on Wikipedia yourself. Um, yeah, that's or, right. It's all out there. Yeah, though. listen to our the, hours the... and hours of content until you find it. Um, right, we get into the deep lore of the blue. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the subject of a future episode, I'm sure. Um, as you can probably tell, we're stalling for time because guess what? It's late in the week and we're recording it late in the week because it's been out of control on our ends, uh, for all kinds of personal and professional reasons, but we are so committed to doing this podcast and never missing a week of it (laughs) for reasons I haven't quite figured out, but nevertheless, we're here again and we're, uh, we're ready. And we thought, you know, what, what could we talk about on such short notice without having any time to read any books? And we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about organizing in particular, a thing that Matt and I have uh, firsthand experience of in some way, shape or form. (laughs) And we'll find out how to talk about it. But we're going to treat everyone to a bit of a unique um, thing. We're bringing back what is for some people an old segment on the show and for some people a more regular, although I guess it's old for them, too, because we haven't done it in a while. (laughs) But usually (laughs) on the lock in, which is a podcast we do behind the Patreon wall. Uh, We often talk about some very funny things that Christians say on reddit.com. 
And uh, we like to just sort of check in with Internet Christians, see what's going on, what's the discourse. And lately, when we've been doing it, Matt has been looking at the Catholicism subreddit, and I've been looking at the Anglicanism one. So we're going to treat you to the choicest questions, what these Christian communities are talking about as a way in, and uh, and to eat up some time <laughs> so we don't have to be smart. <laughs> and then later on, we are going to swing back around to talk a little bit about organizing and the Christian left, and we're going to find a good episode in here, I promise. And so, why don't uh, we start, Matt? Why don't you uh, kick us off here? Yeah, of course. A quick disclaimer. So, this is how this goes, folks. I'm going to ask Dean some questions about Catholicism, and they're going to be the most bonkers <laughs> questions you can imagine. They're going to be really unhinged and strange and asking questions that nobody could possibly know the answer to or care about. Um, and they're going to be just completely wild. Uh, and then Dean's going to ask me questions about Anglicanism, and it's going to be the most boring question <laughs> in the world. It's going to sound might... like uh, Sir Topham Hatt is talking to you in the back of the church. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Okay, so Dean, here's the first one for you. It's asked four hours ago from the Catholicism subreddit, and it's hot off the presses. It's still steaming. Okay. Yuck. <laughs> Could someone help me understand, quote, guardian angels? Right. I'm not against the idea at all. <laughs> so good. Uh, don't be against the idea of guardian angels. That'd be weird. Um, I just don't understand it very well. More specifically, how do they... Oh, I'm sorry. Where slash how did this belief develop? How do we know they interact in our lives? And in what ways, as in, do they only interact regarding spiritual situations? Can we... <laughs> sorry, the grammar here is always bonkers. <laughs> can we and how can we develop a relationship slash personal connection with our guardian angel? Um, and then another provision here. I'm a Protestant hoping to become Catholic, nice. so I didn't grow up in any sort of teaching on the subject. <laughs> that rules. So, Dean, uh, as a as a person who did not who uh, grew up Catholic, became Protestant, and then became Catholic again, <laughs> uh, how is it that guardian angels do their thing that they do? Yeah, that we know we we know they do it, and we love it. But how do they do it? Right, and that is a great question, and it's one for the ages course uh theologians are always talking about it um i don't have a great answer to it except out of my own personal uh repertoire of weird stories of being a, a catholic going to catholic elementary school i remember at one time in catechism i wonder what grade it was maybe third or fourth grade or something i remember learning about guardian angels and you know they they tell you the whole thing you got a guardian guardian angel out there he's helping you out you can say a prayer to him and he'll give you a big hand and i remember <laughs> my immediate feeling was to feel so guilty that i had never checked in never gave this guy a call like he's been out there doing so much work for me <laughs> protecting me from the devil every day i couldn't even give him the time of day I didn't even know that he was out there and i just remember being like i'm so sorry <laughs> that was like my first <laughs> prayer to my guardian angel being like you're you're so busy and i understand that and i promise uh, i'll never take you for granted again but guess what i did haven't talked to him in a long time was your assumption that like the guardian angel is like sort of bored without anyone to talk to or I, just that they no one's appreciating yeah that's what it was it was just doing. underappreciated you know like he's out there fighting demons making sure that i don't i don't know like trip over myself or something and uh <laughs> lord knows there are plenty of opportunities for that so i i guess i just felt like yeah it wasn't getting the thanks or recognition he deserved and i felt pretty bad uh as a like an eight or nine year old 
So, okay, you've answered the question, I guess, right? Because the question is, like, how do we develop some kind of better connection with our guardian <laughs> right, angel? Right. And it is just to feel kind of bad about it and guilty that you have it, so it checked in. Yeah, that is, I guess, the standard Catholic response. Feel a bit guilty about <laughs> it, and guess what? You have a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Guilt is a relationship. Can't forget it. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, we, we're off to a good start here. And yes, Matt, I'm going to ask you a very classic uh, Anglican question. And you're, you're going to notice a theme in these questions, but I won't give it to you right away. I think it's going to have to emerge. Okay. So this question is also kind of fresh for our Anglicanism. It's four days ago. This is a, not quite as populated as the Catholicism subreddit, uh, but it is important. So this comes from, um, yeah, a question asker whose name I can't pronounce. Uh, they say this. Hey, guys, I haven't been here in a while, as some of you may know. It was expected for me to be conf- to be confirmated, it says, <laughs> next summer at Walshingham's Shrine. But yesterday, something unexpected happened. We got, a, we got a deal at school where we could go for 21 days to the UK at Kent. We will visit Canterbury Cathedral, London. But I'm not sure if I should go. I want to, but I can't afford two trips to England in less than a year. Of course, I want to be confirmated and specially visit Walshingham. But 21 days out of my homeland is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so what should I do? So, Matt, should this person take this great <laughs> deal at school and go to Kent? Or should they wait and make sure they do get to Walshingham Shrine, where they can be confirmated at this uh, apparently very special place? So, here's the thing that I love about this question. I know so little about the, geog- the geography of the UK that I'm just, like, frantically <laughs> Googling where Kent is and where Walshingham is. Mm. Um, okay. So some big, some big questions here. If you're, if you're an Anglican person, um, if you're an Anglican person going to the UK is like going to Rome is for Catholics, I guess. I mean, not from my personal perspective, but I can see how this person is apparently really excited about (laughs) it. I feel like it's more like going to Narnia for evangelicals. (laughs) That's true. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The UK is uh, you'll go you'll run into Tumnus for sure, <laughs> and uh, all the other Tumnuses, the little ones, the little Tumni. <laughs> yeah, but should you go to Kent or should you go to Washington? That's a classic sort of Anglican question. <laughs> Everyone's asking it. Everyone wants to know whether you should go to one or the other, and it's tough. You know, one is in Kent and the other is in Washington, and that is the biggest difference. <laughs> so, Dean, I'm I'm googling Washington right now, and here's the rub, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, this implicates our podcast directly. This sort of uh, maybe this is the guardian angel, maybe feeding us something here mm-hmm. uh, for <laughs> feeding us the content that we need. Um, in Washington, uh, UK, uh, there is the Shrine of Our Lady of Washington. Okay. Parentheses Anglican. Okay. And then, then, and then <laughs> that's also... like a, the Communist Party of India, parentheses Marxist. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And then down the road, just barely, just barely a mile away, is <laughs> the Basilica of Our Lady of Washington, mm-hmm. Catholic National Shrine. So we got them both here. There's the Anglican one, there's the Catholic one. Um, it looks like to me, it looks like a church that you could go to. <laughs> Um, and let's see one more bit of information here Uh, on Google reviews someone has commented under the Anglican shrine um, nice as far as shrines go so (laughs) it seems pretty cool (laughs) I'd have a hard time saying no to washing him right it it seems nice as far as shrines go Mm -hmm. and whatever I mean I'm sure the um, 
you know, going to Kenton, going to see the, the you know, going to going to Canterbury. It's a whole thing. But, like, I think here's the thing. Everybody does that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody goes to Washington. Right, right. So I would say go, go to that one. Go to that one first because it's like the it's like the path less trod. And maybe that's what and that's what Anglicans are all after at the end of the day. Right, right. You do have to be careful, though, because, as you said, apparently our team has the Basilica over there. And a basilica okay. is a tier above. You can above. knock it up. You can, yeah, I think so. Well, it's a basilica, not just a shrine, right? right? Um, but you can't get it mixed up. Can you imagine how embarrassed you'd be as an <laughs> as a good Anglican from the United States and you show up to the wrong Our Lady of Wilshingham shrine? Yeah, what a huge whoopsie. <laughs> Egg on your face, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury going to be extremely mad at you. You'd have to go say sorry to him and your um, and your guardian angel both uh, the same day. You've been was- Washinghammed, they'd say, <laughs> and you get a little a little pin that you could put in your bag and take that around. Man, the one thing that Anglicans do love is going to UK. They love it. They it's like crack for them, you know. <laughs> All right, Dean, here's another question that's um, a little less uh, <laughs> a little less UK specific. Once again, from the Catholicism subreddit, asked one day ago, not quite a steaman, but still hot. Mm-hmm. Um, could a Nephilim be saved? Mm. Okay, so. <laughs> I love this fan fiction already. It's great. It's great. Um, so Nephilim, if you don't know, are the offspring of angels who had fallen to earth. Um, so the angels... Uh, the angels had sex with with human women and created children, and the children are the Nephilim. Um, this is sort of like a. It, it's, there's some reference to it in the actual Bible, but then there's some in the the more non canonical books, like the Book of Enoch and whatnot. Um, but the Nephilim are like these giant kind of fellas, and I don't know, maybe not fellas. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't want to start speculating on the gender of these of these great these great beings, um, but. <laughs> Dean, here's the question. If the Nephilim are half human and half fallen angel slash demon, is it possible for them to repent, be saved, and receive the sacraments? Mm-hmm. So could you handle that one for for us here on Reddit? Yeah, that is the the topic of my new great DC comic book, um, Nephilim Man. And he's out there trying to get <laughs> redeemed, uh, just like Blade, right? The same kind of situation. Um I'm going to say, what a great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say yes, but like it, it, but it has to be in sort of a blade situation where, you know, blades a vampire, okay. he's half vampire, but the only way that he really gets kind of a, a big thumbs up from everybody is that he goes around defeating other vampires. So it's the same mm-hmm. with his Nephilim. It's like, yeah, he could be saved, but he's going to have to, you know, do some work to, uh, <laughs> do some work, maybe not as violent as Blade. I'm not saying he has to go kill the other Nephilim, but he does have to become sort of like a very annoying street preacher to the other Nephilim. Yeah, that makes sense. Isn't this the premise of Hellboy? Is it? I mean, I don't think Hellboy was a Nephilim, but he was like a demon, Oh, sure, right? sure, yeah. And the whole thing true. is like, can he be a good guy? And, right. Um, but the trouble with Nephilim is it's like, yeah, you have the Hellboy's your dad, but your mom is just like a regular lady. Mm-hmm. Oh, but see, see, this is the extremely bizarre, uh, like racial genealogical <laughs> thing that the Bible forces you into sometimes, because Hellboy is already a half demon himself. Mm-hmm. So, kind of, right. kind of complicated. Right. So you get the original sin from your mom because that's how it works, and then, 
<laughs> and then you just get regular, uh, maybe even pre-original sin from your your demon dad. Man, what a complicated situation. See, but in Hellboy, he figures it out, though, because he fights Nazis, and that was cool. That'll so do I think, it. So if it, that'll do it, exactly, right? So if you're a Nephilim, and you're down here running around, and you're like, I wish I could sort of become a better creature, uh, born in, you know, you got a raw deal. You can't choose who you're born to. Uh, but yeah, just go fight Nazis, and you'll be fine. Sure, okay, so there are two pathways. You can either become a militant anti-fascist, or you can just become like the Kirk Cameron of Nephilim. Okay, wait. So a militant anti-fascist makes sense to me. How do you become the Kirk Cameron of That's where you, you become the, the street preacher converting all the other Nephilim. Oh, I see what you're saying. Bringing them yeah, into yeah. the fold. Yeah, okay. I think that I think both answers are great. Yeah, I mean, they're both great, compelling comic books, I'm sure. Um, here <laughs> is another one for you. This is... Uh, I swear to God, if you mention one UK city, I'm going well, to be so mad. We'll see. This is from somebody, and it says, uh, it's 19 days ago, and it's struggling with home worship, parentheses, again. Um, oh, no. So it says, so my aunt gave me a statue of Our Lady of Sorrows and a St. Domino, Diamino cross as an Easter gift, and now I face a problem I had back <laughs> in 2021. Um, I have like four crucifixes, more than 10 icons, nearly 20 statues, uh, eight rosaries, and only two altars. And they do list every single one, but I'm doing you the kindness of not reading them to you. Uh, I want to have a more simple and austere place of worship, but at the same time, I want to use everything I've got. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't know how I'm going to make it happen. Uh, if you have any advice, let me know. So, Matt, this person is swimming in religious uh, paraphernalia. paraphernalia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's they so do much. need to simplify. So how do they Marie Kondo their their own personal uh, devotion center here? Yeah, the uh, the provision that they want to use at all is so painful <laughs> for me to hear. I don't like that for them. Um, here's what you need to do. You know, find your find the pieces that speak to you. Hold them in your hand. Mm-hmm. Think about them a little bit. T- smell them, touch them. I don't know. And whichever ones make you feel really holy. I, not spark joy because that's not what religious stuff does for anybody. Um, but if they make you feel closer to your guardian angel or to God or, you know, to whatever other sort of spiritual reality you're up, up against, uh, you keep that one and the rest of it, you put it in a box and you put it in your basement. Mm-hmm. And now, that's the end of the story. <laughs> here's the problem with that. This person does say in here, um, when I pray before the icons and statues, this is in the comments. Uh, I feel the duty to look at them. So having too much of them could be exhausting. So my concern is, sure, box them (laughs) up and put them in a basement. But, like, aren't you going to feel a little bit bad when you're so exhausted from looking at them, uh, putting (laughs) them just in the basement there? No, here's the thing. Because you put them in the basement, and then midway through the year, you switch them all out. Okay, seasonal icons and so on. Yeah, because then, you know, you get – once you become tired of the ones that you have, (laughs) a considerable collection of, like, religious paraphernalia – you switch them out, and it's like, oh, man, it's all new to me again, you'll say. Right, right, <laughs> I'm right. so excited to pray in my house with these great little figurines. Fair enough. Now, I know you did present a warning right off the top, but I just I do want to mention specifically <laughs> that three of these statues are from Our Lady of Washingham. So uh, <laughs> it's... it's pretty important, apparently. <laughs> I've never heard of this place in my entire life. And, uh, <laughs> it's all they can talk about on this subreddit, so I don't know how. These great Anglicans love this one UK city. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure something great happened there. I'm going to Google it later, and I'll figure it out. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe just take your take your box of stuff and ship it off. They could use it there, I'm sure. People True, are always yeah. going there. That's right. Get them all to Washington. Okay. Oh my gosh, I am <laughs> I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Anglicans <laughs> are the weirdest bunch of people in the entire world. Um, instead of asking questions about like uh, demons and angels and whether or not they can take communion, it's like, what do I do with my big box of toys? <laughs> All of my great religious action figures. What can I do with them? How do That's I keep right. how do I keep my home prayer life fresh with all these great guys around? <laughs> it's too exhausting to look at all of them. <laughs> I would agree. I'm exhausted <laughs> just thinking about it. All right. Um, yeah. It's been 20 minutes of these goofs, and I love them. Wait, I love wait, these wait. Goofs. Okay, if you don't have any more, I do have one more very important one. Okay. 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 Yeah. This question is simply the title is simply shrines? Question mark. Oh my god! And the body, the, the body of the text goes. <laughs> it goes like this: I know the Anglicans have revived the shrine at you guessed it, Washingham. <laughs> but have there been any revivals of other medieval Marian shrines, such as the one at Woolpit, which I imagine is also very important? So, um, you know, Matt, uh, just want to highlight: yeah. in the last twenty days, there have been at least three posts about the shrine at Walshingham. So, any other uh, revivals of medieval Marian shrines, such as the one at Woolpit, that you're familiar with? You know, I'm, I usually got my finger on the pulse of these issues. Um, <laughs> when it comes to shrines, I am in the know and I love them. <laughs> but no, I haven't heard about any others but, but this one. So weird. Yeah, it is super weird for me not to know that. Um, oh, my God. I can't even. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of it right now and it looks great. Honestly, it's a great <laughs> shrine. Mary's up there. There are candles. What else can you ask for in a shrine? I mean, that's all there is. I love to imagine um, this subreddit as like picture sort of the idyllic English village you can imagine on a cliff by the seaside or something. And there's a handful of people who live there um, and there's like one country parson and he's just walking around answering everyone's questions about Walshingham. That's how I picture this subreddit. Just the weirdest small community <laughs> of, of Anglicans very concerned about uh, where to get their next shrine. Um, the... The website does say that Walshingham is England's Nazareth. <laughs> Whoa, that is a big claim. It is a big claim for the Anglican Church to make. I don't know what that means. I mean, I <laughs> guess uh, there's some kind of appearance of Mary associated with it. I'm sure King Ethelfled III or whatever mm -hmm. was there, and that was great for them. Man, I can't believe this. Right. I can't you, believe this. Yeah. I've been I've been Episcopalian for more than a year, and I've never even heard of this place. And now, <laughs> now I'm learning that I guess I have to go. It sounds like you do have to go. It is literally your Nazareth. Mm -hmm. I such a such a uh, mis misuse of my time in Episcopalian <laughs> church to not know this. Uh, I'm going to talk to my priest really soon. Um, I'm in the uh, the young adult group group chat, and I'm going to just kind of go ahead and drop that in there. If anyone's ever heard of Washingham, and why hasn't anyone told me about it yet? Yeah, it seems like I said extremely significant. Okay. Um, we have to move on now. It's been 23 minutes, and I, I've, <laughs> I've I've said the names of more more UK cities than I've ever wanted to. Um, and we're gonna move on. Um, Dean, are are all hearts clear on that? 
I mean, for now, we'll see. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hold the other Walshingham questions that I'm sure I can find in about two minutes for next time we talk. <laughs> it's just shock block full of them. Um, that's all the England subreddit is, people talking about going to Walshingham, UK's Nazareth. Um, all right. <laughs> so apart from these questions, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world right now, and uh, we're always talking about it. It's all too easy to be just a doomer. This is like... Um, this is like the common refrain of our podcast lately is, uh, you know, climate change is bad. Uh, Christian fascism is bad. It's on the rise and we hate it. Um, all kinds of regular dumb stuff. Sorry. What's that? All kinds of regular dumb stuff that politicians are up to. Um, and it feels like a lot to really deal with. Um, so we thought we would talk a little bit about the antidote to doomerism and that is organizing. Um, Dean and I are both organizers in different capacities, uh, but we're specifically all about organizing people in religious communities to take all of those good intentions and motivations from within their religion or whatever other moral framework they might have and to get out there and actually do something. Um, but doing something is hard because you can't just like do something, right? You have, there are lots of steps to take. Um, organizing kind of presupposes the idea that um, there is change that can happen in the world if you have enough people to kind of like force the hand of people in power, which is, I think, a correct assumption, but uh, is a complicated one, just the same. Anyways, in light of all of that, um, let's not be doomers. Let's figure out how to do organizing, especially with regards to our faith communities, because those are the ones that are probably most readily available to us. I mean, maybe not. Uh, some folks listen to this podcast, you know, you might not be religious at all, and that's fine. You don't have to be. Um, but I think for some, uh, your faith community is a really powerful place to kind of uh, get people's gears turning about the injustices of the world. Because, I mean, it's a place where you're directly confronting, you know, like moral teachings and the reality of the world. So it seems like a good place to start um, when it comes to like uh, building power and organizing. And uh, it's complicated, but I think something that makes a lot of sense. At least it's made sense to me in my own community and um, maybe more broadly as well. Uh, it makes so much sense to me, in fact, that recently I wrote a piece for Sojourners about the uh, the recent wave of like union organizing and why it's important for religious people to be involved as well. Um, in short, I mean, the, the piece says that, uh, I mean, workers win unions. Uh, uh, that's it, right? Workers are the people who win unions at the end of the day. But it is really helpful to have a whole community of support behind those workers uh, to show up, to be loud, to be annoying, to cause problems. And to help build power against those bosses who don't want to, you know, listen to workers. But, you know, you can do that around all kinds of issues, not just unions, not just labor. You can do it, you know, for everything. So we'll, we'll talk about it here in a minute. Um, but, yeah, there are two reasons, I think, broadly, that uh, religious people should be interested in organizing conversations, um, especially around, I don't know, broadly social justice kinds of questions. And the two reasons are really straightforward. First of all, our religious calling is to be on the side of the oppressed. Like that's the whole point of this podcast. We've said mm -hmm. it a million times and we'll say it a million more times. Just watch. Um, so, okay. There's a moral impetus there. And then the second thing is that like our churches have real political power. If we can figure out how to leverage it uh, into doing something. And that's complicated because you know, your church is a nonprofit and you probably want to keep it that way. Um, and your church shouldn't be probably telling you who to vote for or things like that. But your church could be directing you to care about certain things more than others or, uh, you know, taking on particular struggles, broadly speaking. 
Um, so in this episode, we are going to talk about some of the orienting ideas around organizing your church. That's right. Exactly. Uh, I think it's an interesting question, uh, what to do with church communities and what's their utility. Because as you said, Matt, like when we're talking about labor organizing workers, when unions, uh, you know, some of those workers might go to your church and some of them might not. So the question is kind of how does the church factor into that? Maybe we could talk about that. Um, but yeah, there are so many other ways, so many other levers of power and social issues and so on where uh, it requires like a popular movement, right? Getting a lot of different people out with lots of different uh, vantage points, different kinds of attachments to communities and faith communities, even though they have, I think, a more complicated uh, role to play in societies today than they might have, you know, 50 years ago or so. They still are, I think, really unfairly written off a lot of the time by the left as kind of uh, necessarily backward or, or uh, kind of um, limited in scope because they're not workplaces, right? They're, they have a different relationship to the forces of capital or something like that or, or other levers of power than, you know, a number of other kind of communities or constituencies. So it's important to figure out both like what is the strategic advantage of organizing a faith community? And then also uh, what what can you do with them? What can they do with you? And so on. So even though you said, Matt, like whether or not you're, you know, if you're in a religious community, it's maybe easier to kind of see this stuff already because you're you're in it, right? You, you hear the moral language coming from the pulpit. You can make some natural connections. But I think even if you're not a participant in a religious community, it's helpful just to kind of think through how faith communities are one one node in like an important network of winning stuff, whether it's winning a union, winning a legislative change, uh, or in an ideal world, you know, even creating uh, the basis for some other alternative, a political or social alternative. Um, and maybe we can talk about that some more later about how churches kind of factor into, I don't know, stuff like dual power, mutual aid networks and things like that. But all that to say, it's good. I believe in it. And that's why I spend a lot of my time during the week trying to figure out how to organize other Christian folks and, and to be an organized Christian person myself. So I'm glad we're finally getting around to it here. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, there's nothing I think more frustrating to me personally as a human being um, and churchgoer to hear like really progressive -y and social justice -y types of things from the pulpit and then see nothing otherwise. I, I think mm -hmm. that's such a bummer. Um, you know, you can have a, a cool pastor or a cool guest speaker and they say something really powerful. You know, they convince you to think about the world differently. And that is good in and of itself. Um, but it's a bummer that, you know, your church wouldn't kind of take the next step. Right. If you, you know, if, if you're if you go to, a you know, a progressive or social justice oriented church or whatever, um, and everyone seems, you know, on board generally with, um, with that sort of worldview, it seems, you know, pretty natural that you take the next step and like maybe do something in your community. Mm -hmm. But it's it's harder. It's harder uh, to do than just for me to say, because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of like failing. <laughs> and it does take just sort of a lot of nuance, I think, within your community as well. But um, but yeah, Dean, like you said, I mean, I think there's something really important about it, um, you know, to, to move people to actually act in the world, um, and get beyond just listening in the, in, in the pews and out into the streets. Yeah. Maybe something else to add too, is that the right has already figured this out, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, Christians are a really reliable constituency for right-wing stuff and they're reliable in an organized way. Like they see that as part of what it means to be a Christian is to, 
go out and do something as simple as voting maybe but also lots of other complicated stuff right harass uh teachers or school boards or city council and so on like right-wing christians are already organized to do all that kind of stuff or or to write letters to their local i don't know clergy or or bishops or (laughs) you know whoever might be uh somehow right-wing christians kind of get that if you want to create a, a kind of social environment where your dreams can come true in a material way, then you have to find ways to pressure and communicate with um, levers of power. And for whatever reason, left-wing Christians do this, I think, in different ways. Like, they do it, you know, there is a long tradition of left-wing Christians who are also organized and so on, so I don't mean to pretend that, like, it's not happening or something. Um, it is happening, and that's very cool. But on the whole, I think, like, in terms of just identity, a lot of left-wing Christian types, they get involved in organizing in other things, right? They're part of a different organization or a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the church community maybe isn't, like, it's an untapped resource for a lot of folks. And uh, so it's good just to recognize that <laughs> if we don't meet the right on our own terrain, then we're also going to fall behind. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good example, kind of demonstrating the way that the right has organized people in religious communities. Because it's complicated because, like, demographically speaking, like a lot of right-wing Christians aren't like churchgoers um, mm-hmm. across the board. I mean, it depends on exactly who you're talking about, right? Like the way that might break down for evangelicals versus right-wing Catholics or something is probably different. Um, you know, the the political organization kind of comes from different places. Uh, but if people are nominally Christians, um, regardless, I mean, right-wing figures will use that as sort of like, you know, a lever to pull psychologically or something to get mm-hmm. people to do things. Like, for example, um, I don't know, Sean Foyt did a whole thing at Disneyland um, trying to push the uh, LGBTQ people or groomers or whatever, and Disney is somehow complicit in that. Like, that was a big thing that he did very recently. And, I mean, it, it did just that, right? Like, it brought a bunch of, like, strange church people out to protest Disney, and it was a rallying thing for people on the right. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't work the same way as it does on the left. But, like, um, I'm not trying to say take a page out of the right-wing playbook because that's not what I'm after. Mm-hmm. But all I'm mm-hmm. trying to say is that uh, people, Christians on the right, do are, are organized in, in different ways to to do political things, but they don't really maybe think of them as political Um but Christians on the left, let's get get our heads in the game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll talk about some kind of strategies around it, but perhaps we could start with like some examples. Maybe, Matt, I don't know. You were telling me a neat story about some stuff you did at your church. And then maybe yeah. I can talk a little bit about what I what I've been doing in the last couple months. Totally. I mean, it's not like this is like the most radical thing. It's pretty, pretty meek and mild mannered, I would say. <laughs> but I mean, it's like a step. And I think that's kind of the thing you need to recognize about organizing, too, is that there is sort of a. I don't know, uh, like a ladder of engagement, I think, too, when it comes to, you know, organizing. Um, So at my church, um, I live in St. Louis. People know this about me. This isn't doxing myself, I don't think. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, Missouri is a bad place. Also, no surprise, I think, anybody anywhere. Um, But there's all kinds of extremely bad state legislation um, in Missouri, uh, one particular piece of legislation is um, kind of around some anti-trans stuff, especially with regards to um, access to um, gender-affirming health care for people who are under 18. Um, so state legislators were trying to ban that so that people who are under 18 don't get the health care they need, and that sucks. 
that's bad. I told my church community that I don't like that. <laughs> and um, the church I go to specifically has like a long sort of history of LGBTQ activism. So I told them that and then everyone was like, well, it seems like this is something that we should obviously be involved in. So what we did was during the announcements, we said, we're going to write letters to these, <laughs> these, bad, um, these bad legislators and we're going to tell them exactly what we think of them. And we did. Um, so after church, we met and we wrote something like, I don't know, 100 or so letters to these different legislators, all from people at our church telling them, we're mad. <laughs> we're mad at them. You shouldn't do this. It's bad. You know, we, we used lots of moral language. We kind of, you know, used our biblical backing and we sent those letters off. And in the end, um, it didn't help, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. I mean, Missouri legislators are going to, they're Missouri legislators at the end of the day. And uh, do they care what one Episcopal church says in St. Louis? Absolutely not. Uh, but I think it's important to bear witness anyways. It's important to press those buttons anyways. And if it didn't change the hearts or minds of those particular legislators, I mean, that sucks and that's on them. But it did, you know, change the vibe at our church for a hot second. Um, you know, people, like I said at the beginning, right, we hear lots of like social justice oriented and moral language from the pulpit. And now a bunch of people took a step to do something about it. And I think that's a good step, right? Um, we're organizing something similar um, kind of coming up, uh, not uh, at the state level, but at the city level. Um, a bunch of our city councilors are going to pass uh, legislation that basically makes being homeless illegal and uh, gives police the ability to kind of harass homeless people for setting up a tent. And we're going to tell them once again, don't do this. This is bad. Um, you know, and will it work? I, I don't know. Probably not. Um, <laughs> politicians are people who are infamously stupid and hard to move. Um, but, you know, even if it doesn't kind of get the goal that we wanted, it's good to press those buttons. It's good to um, kind of build that culture within your church to like actually speak about things and to, you know, do, do the things that you can to um, maybe get your politicians or people in power to think twice about doing something. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And what you're saying about it changing the culture of the church is probably the most important thing because at the end of the day, as you mentioned, it's it's really hard to move a politician anyway. I mean, at, most politicians are not moved by argument. They're moved by lots of other stuff. They have lobbyists who are paid to tell them what to do, and they often do those things. <laughs> but uh, it's really important to create a sense of, um, you know, shared struggle, especially among those yeah. kinds of communities, faith communities, and organizing, in my experience, is a lot of improvisation. It's a lot of figuring out what you can build on. And the hardest part is getting started. And once you're started, you can build momentum. Like what you were just saying about the uh, letters regarding um, criminalization of homelessness uh, is really similar to what's been going on in Toronto. And last winter, I think it was, there was a group of faith people who read a letter talking about how their faith really commits them to, um, you know, working with homeless people and how they were opposed to uh, all kinds of stuff that were going on in the city. And, like, it, our city counselors didn't roll back their laws, but finding out that that exists, like, I was able to send a separate email to my own city counselor and say, look, you know, I'm a Christian person, I go to this parish, there's this many people there, and, like, I am really concerned about this. And, like, it's an election year coming up in Toronto, and, like, he sent me an email back, and we're having a conversation about it, you know, because at the end of the day, like, 
faith communities represent constituencies and uh, sometimes something as simple as a bunch of people writing a letter just gives you uh, permission or some kind of um, uh, backing that you can use to kind of, yeah, just keep building off of and improvising. And I think it's important to just keep building that sense of uh, shared struggle and keep thinking about how to like push the push the snowball a little further down the hill so it gets a bit bigger. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing I think it's worth recognizing, too, is like, okay, politicians are a group of people who have absolutely zero contact with regular people. Right. <laughs> um, especially, I mean, if you're going to write a letter to a politician, there's uh, a pretty good chance that that letter will never even reach them just because of the ways that, like, you know, the internal office might work or whatever or what that person's priorities are. But, like, uh, you know, anything you can do to, like, make a politician actually hear you is really worth doing um, because they don't, right? They fundamentally don't. Um, when was the last time any congressperson <laughs> elected now um, representing us has talked to a real person who makes the minimum wage? I don't know. Probably pretty rare. When you can, um, organizing, like, a bunch of people to even write letters, it might seem like, you know, not a revolutionary act at all because it's, you know, not a revolutionary act, but but it's something I, I think uh, to do, and it's it's worth doing it because you, maybe you'll have an impact um, on them. Um, maybe God will work through you and change their heart. <laughs> um, maybe their their guardian angel will, will smack them upside the head. Um, or if <laughs> if nothing else, it is like yeah, exactly like you said, Dean. Um, a moment to sort of share the struggle between you and the people that you go to church with. It definitely changes the dynamic, right? Like um, people who you sit around. Um, on a Sunday morning and you take the Eucharist with or whatever, you know, they become people who um, now you're struggling with in a different way. And I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And I mean, I like that example. And that's why I think I invited you to start off with it, because it's it is not a revolutionary act in and of itself, but uh, it's the kind of thing that is a tangible thing that you can do. And it's also it's that scale of stuff that you have to do a bunch of times if you ever want to have a revolutionary act. Right. Like, yeah, um, if you're if you spend your whole life looking around for the revolution, you're just not going to have it and you're going to be disappointed <laughs> and it's going to make you bitter and jaded and cynical because like that's all that you can be like. It's just not it's not going to happen. There will not be a revolution tomorrow <laughs> as much as anybody might want one. But if there's ever going to be one, it's going to be the product of a, a critical mass, right? Of a lot of people having a shared experience that changes their kind of subjectivity, their understanding of themselves and their relation to others. And that's what churches are actually pretty good at for the most part, for better and for worse, <laughs> oftentimes for worse, right? We talk about that on the show all the time, that the church is this kind of weird, like, machine that turns you into all kinds of <laughs> different <laughs> different kinds of creatures and uh organizing is is one way of maybe trying to figure out how to be intentional about that process right and and those small acts like especially if you get a victory out of it i mean a letter writing campaign you know probably doesn't succeed but sometimes every once in a while it does and small victories are also great ways of like giving people a taste of power and again, just kind of scaling upward. So the hardest thing to do is start and it's good to start with something actually tangible, actually achievable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, okay. In light of that, the hardest part is to start. That's true. Um, just to do something, even if it's something that, you know, is not uh, starting a commune or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> the hardest thing is to start. Uh, Dean and I, uh, we put our brains together and we kind of came up with a handful of um, of like waypoints maybe um, or like a, a process to think about with your church. Um, this is not like 
the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism or something. This is just like some ideas that we have about organizing that I think are probably worth um, bringing to your church community. Um, and we kind of just laid them out as like a, as a flow, as a workflow or something. <laughs> so the, the first step that we have is really just like laying the groundwork with your community. Like, do you know anyone at your church outside of, you know, waving to them or something, <laughs> right? Or talking to them at coffee hour. Uh, does your church have like a space uh, created already to talk about social justice issues? And if not, like, how could you create that? Um, let's see. There's nothing, I think, less radical than a book club, but those are great kind of spaces, I think, to talk with people in your community about the the moral call that you have as a church community, but also like how that rubs up against the real world. And like, you know, book clubs are boring because they're talking about a book, but um, they are maybe like a good step on the way because they provide a space for you to actually have a real conversation with somebody that you don't know or that you just go to church with or something, right? So I think that's the, the first step is like finding places to lay the groundwork and talk about issues. Like, you know, it, it's it's hard to like campaign. It's hard to organize if you have no sort of shared ground of, about a moral vision. So um, any places you could do that are probably pretty worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's also interesting because uh, it's true. There's no nothing uh, less radical than a book club, maybe. But there's something very radical about getting people in the same kind of area just to talk about an issue even. like So the organization that I work for, uh, Development and Peace, has this really interesting model where it's based a lot in like parish conversations, parish groups, parish representatives, and so on. And so it's a lot of trying to figure it out. And there's all kinds of varying degrees of activity. But something I've been trying to figure out more and more is how to kind of build that that experience of, you know, a, sh a shared goal of trying to make a better world in, in a parish setting. And not too long ago, I was at a church talking with folks about it. Um, and they were like really jazzed about international solidarity, really excited to do something in their church, but, you know, just like weren't sure where to begin. And uh, once you just start talking about things that get people excited, it's pretty amazing how quickly fun ideas start to emerge, right? Like um, some people, there was an idea of a book club floating around. There was also an idea of like, could we invite a speaker to come here who could just like tell us about something that we don't know that much about? Um, could we show a film? Could we, uh, there was like an idea to do some gardening or something and use that as a way to talk about ecology and so on. And it's like, you know, the only thing that these people have is like a shared desire to make the world better. And uh, once you kind of just open up a space to be like, and how are we going to do that? You already kind of build a cer certain like set of social relations that I think can, you know, sustain something else going forward. Yeah, I really like the idea of like bringing a speaker into your church or something. That mm -hmm. seems like a cool idea because um, that kind of leads in also to the next step along the way. Um, you know, you're having these conversations with people, maybe you're listening to a speaker, you're watching a documentary, I don't know, any of those things, right? And when you're doing that, I mean, in organizing, this is like identifying an issue, right? Like if you were union organizing, this is like the first step that you'd want to start doing with your coworkers is like figuring out what it is that people are upset about in your workplace, right? What what are things that are motivating ideas to them that might actually spur them on to act with you in forming a union or something? But I think the same kind of thing goes for your church, right? Like you listen to the people that you are with um, in your community and you figure out what they get riled up about. Like what are the issues that like really motivate people in your own community? And then um, maybe it's worth bringing in a speaker or it's worth like connecting with an outside organization that, um, you know, does work in that area. 
around ecology or around um, the unhoused or around, um, you know, labor or whatever, all those things. So, like, finding those conversations, um, finding a space for those conversations is important. And then, like, just, like, listening and being, like, Mm -hmm. really ready to sort of, like, I start identifying the themes and the issues that are really pertinent to your community. Yeah, I think, too, that's the other piece is, like, it's really tempting, I think, for people who are already interested in ideas about social justice or whatever to feel, or at least I felt this way, kind of responsible to do it all on your own. Um, And that is, like, a recipe for failure. Uh, I've been part of a few organizations where I've kind of felt myself in that role of being, like, if I don't make this agenda, then, like, it's not going to happen. And as soon as that starts happening, like, the group is dead on arrival right (laughs) if you're if you're the only person making anything happen it's just not going to pan out and i think that is where it's helpful to identify issues that other people are also invested in for their own sake right or like um plugging in especially an organization that already has identified an issue we mentioned like the the right is good at doing this already i mean that's what they do all the time like right-wing organizations go looking for church communities that they can basically resource, like they can provide them with stuff um, and vice versa. The community then has a kind of really natural like um, onboarding process into all kinds of other things that are going on. And I always suggest that to people who ask me like how to organize a church community. It's like, well, find people who are organized and like get your church to hang out with them. Right. That, that is uh, so much easier than trying to like create something from whole cloth. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the difference with the right though, is that they are like, creating those issues (laughs) rather than responding to them. But yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good idea though. All right. So say in a hypothetical world, um, you have started having conversations with people at church, you figured out uh, some, some issues that might motivate them in one way or the other, then what do you do? So I think that's when things get really tricky because you actually have to start doing different things. So uh, a pretty important part of, uh, figuring out how to organize or, you know, you've identified an issue or whatever, but now you have to kind of figure out like um, what are the levers and buttons around that issue that you and your community can actually pull or press or, or impact in a sort of meaningful way. Um, In the organizing world, there's something called a theory of change, which is a phrase I don't particularly like, but um, maybe is kind of helpful. So the idea with a, with a theory of change is that, you know, you kind of start with the idea, you start with the issue that you want to change, um, you know, raising the minimum wage in your city, getting a certain, you know, piece of legislation passed or whatever. And then you start working your way backwards to figure out, like, what do you have to do? What steps do you have to take to get that theory of change done? Right. So kind of working your way backwards. Um But I think like, you know, when you do that, when you kind of engage in the process of creating a theory of change, I mean, you run into a whole lot of other questions and problems and areas of research that you kind of have to do, right? Like, um, (laughs) like, you know, who pulls, like, who pulls the strings of the people who pull the strings of the people who create legislation? Like, you know, um, maybe what you'd call power mapping or something, right? Like figuring out like Mm -hmm. what people you need to influence in order to even kind of get the ball rolling in a certain direction. Yeah. uh, There are, as you say, Matt, in the organizing space, there are a lot of like, there's a lot of vocabulary, a lot of habits and, and tools and so on. And some of them are more and less useful. But one thing I really like about organizers in general is that there is this kind of obsession with tools, and I like tools. I like having them. I like having worksheets, <laughs> things I can fill out to, like, put my brain on a piece of paper instead of letting it all soup up in there or something. And uh, I think, like, 
an exercise like power mapping, for example, is so useful precisely because it can start opening up a, a tangible strategy. So, um, you know, something as simple as being like, who is a person our community can legitimately influence, whether that is like a, a legislator or just like a, another influencer in a community or something else. And then trying to figure out, is there a person closer to that person that you can influence and so on, right? These are things that power mapping exercises kind of lead you down. Um, tangibly speaking, I think I mentioned this maybe on the lock-in podcast, but there's a really cool um, like group of folks called, uh, well, I forget what they're called, but <laughs> they have this project called Beautiful Trouble. Um, it's a website, they have a book and, and everything else, but it kind of just amasses tools um, and power mapping is one of them, but there's a ton of other tools as well. And they're basically like ways of kind of um, you know, getting getting you to like create a map, like a roadmap. And for me, that I think made all the difference when I started moving from like, I have these desires, I have this impulse for social justice. I kind of know maybe what needs to change, but I have no idea where to go. Um, it's something I do, like I do some work with students, like high school and college students. And with them, it, you can like see the light bulb go on a lot of the time too, of being like, what's an issue you want to change? Okay, let's like put it on a piece of paper and start figuring it out. Like, who do you have to talk to to get it done? Um, there's there's a certain empowerment that happens there when you can start uh, working from that in a tangible way. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, a light bulb goes off and you realize you can actually affect the world and it's great. A good feeling, <laughs> kind of empowering actually to think <laughs> about it, even if you don't win ever, um, it's good. Yeah, but maybe that's another thing too. Like, if you don't win, um, <laughs> determining like what winning even looks yeah. like is very important. Yeah, totally. I mean, if there's anything I've ever learned from organized labor, it's that you lose most times, um, mm-hmm. and that's a bummer. But at the same time, I mean, it's a it's an important lesson to learn. Um, you lose because the you're out organized. Maybe not uh, in the terms of like moral correctness or even like maybe you have a lot of workers or whatever on your side but like at the end of the day capital holds the money right they have enough lawyers Mm -hmm. to to shut you up or to fire you or whatever losing is kind of part of the game which sucks but it's true marta harnaker has a really helpful idea i think around that um called the pedagogy of limitations and uh harnaker when she talks about it 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 basically means like you know, of course you want revolution all at once. Of course you want, like, the world to change overnight because, like, that's the, – the desire is to not, like, keep dealing with it, right? <laughs> you want you want it to be resolved and fixed in a just way. But uh, the pedagogy of limitations recognizes that, like, not everything is possible at once. Um, and, you know, the steps that you'd even have to take to make it possible is probably a pretty long road, unfortunately. Um, so I don't know. Um, it's such a hard thing, especially, I mean, like, I think in church communities or, or like more like, uh, organizing focused social justice communities, even that is probably all kind of like assumed that whatever you're doing is going to be, <laughs> it's the, it's the long arc of the universe that you have to, uh, that you yourself have to bend toward justice. Um, mm-hmm. but like, it's a hard thing for, I think people who are really like energized by leftist movements to figure out because you know you want revolution all at once or whatever you want the proletariat to rise up overnight and it just doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't happen like that um yeah well fi- speaking of that though i guess the the next step after you kind of figure out what change might look like what winning might look like you know what levers you need to press or pull or whatever 
uh, you probably need to figure out your tactics. That's sort of another uh, a thing that sometimes people get confused. Strategy and tactics, two different things. Uh, tactics are like, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Um, like, how, what's the execution of that, you know, that theory of change going to actually look like? Does it mean like, you know, you're going to have a march through your city? Does it mean you're going to occupy a building? Does it mean you're going to, you know, write letters to people or uh, have some kind of coordinated social media campaign? Uh, are you going to sign petitions or what whatnot? I mean, all of these things are, are about tactics and choosing the right one, I think, is important. But uh, again, along the lines of the pedagogy of limitations, sometimes, you know, some tactics are just not possible, but uh, mm -hmm. and, and others are. And some are counterintuitive, right? Like if you take on a tactic that is unpopular either with the group you're organizing with or in the, the kind of public at large, you're going to do more harm than good. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it happen where someone comes like right out the gate with like the wildest idea about something that is probably very cool, like probably a good idea to go. I don't know, like some some things that are actually maybe don't even sound so wild, like doing a big banner drop on a highway. Right. Which is something activists do all the time. Um, but maybe like in a particular setting is just like people aren't prepared yeah. for something like that. And so just trying to think about how to not scare people off and create multiple points of engagement for big actions and things like that. Tactics are important to kind of think through um, uh, giving people a variety of levels. You know, the, the popular phrase in organizing spaces is a diversity of tactics where you can also uh, maybe someone is comfortable with being arrested and they can do that. Maybe someone is not comfortable or can't be arrested, whatever. They have reasons to be <laughs> precariously in the country or so on and so forth, right? Uh, creating a kind of um, movement where people don't feel that they need to um, overstep their own kind of, uh, you know, uh, realities or that they're prepared to do something is uh, super important. Totally. I mean, it's really good to figure out ways that your tactics kind of spring from your theory of change or from your power mapping yeah. or something, right? Like, you know, um, if someone <laughs> you don't want to just like get arrested for the sake of being arrested, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. if you're going to get arrested, you want to make sure the media is there. Right. And if you want the media to be there, then you have to like do something to make them be there. Right. So if you if you mm -hmm. need the media there and you want to be arrested, then you have to have like a march or a sit in or what, you know, all these kinds of things kind of spring from one another. But you're, you're working your way backwards. You have an idea of what you want to change. Then you have to figure out how you're going to do it and who you want to be there and like what if the press is an important part of that or whatever or if they're not you know it's all these questions that you need to be asking but those are the you know what's at the crux of your tactics you have to figure out all of these uh these small details yeah well i think that opens up to the the next sort of thing we identified which is trying to develop some capacity in a group uh which is to say like i said earlier you don't want to be the only person doing anything because that will be bad <laughs> it would be bad for you and bad for everyone else and developing capacity is really about figuring out um, how to give people enough opportunities for building their own kind of creativity and skill sets and leadership uh, in a movement as possible. Like you want to maximize um, as many as many people as you can get to feel empowered and creative as you possibly can. Like that is the key to a sustainable movement. And when it comes to like you were just saying, Matt, like, let's say you want to let's say you think that being arrested will be a value, but you need people to hear about it. Well, maybe you need to find somebody in your group who like knows a reporter at your local news station, right? And trying to be like, can you take this on? Can this be a role for you where you go out and reach that person and so on, right? Trying to identify people who can uh, continually take up roles. There's actually a really great book um, that I read not too long ago 
called uh, How Organizations Develop Activists by this uh, social scientist, uh, uh, Hari Han is her name. And she says, like, the difference between an organization that is only good at mobilizing and a, an organization that is, like, capable of kind of sustaining a campaign or activists over time really comes down to exactly that, like, trying to build capacity, trying to uh, basically offload as many responsibilities from a central organizer as you possibly can into, like, an engaged membership at large. Like, that is what makes the difference. So when it comes to even something like a parish group, it's the same principle, I think, right? Like trying to create as many people who feel they have a leadership mm-hmm. stake in in something as you can, whether it's something from like a reading group to, I don't know, a letter writing campaign to, you know, standing out there with a handful of people trying to prevent like a tenant eviction, like uh, giving people those kind of feelings of, of leadership makes all the difference for uh, for that action and for building other actions on top of it later. Totally. A, a way that I like to think about that particular thing is um... – in uh, let's see, Jane McAlevey, uh, an, an, a pretty prominent uh, writer um, in the labor movement, she has a book called No Shortcuts. And one of the so, so the whole idea is that like you know um, building power takes time, and you can't take shortcuts because if you do, you're gonna mess it all up <laughs> in one way or another. <laughs> but um, not developing capacity or like you know the view that like uh, that you're gonna do it all yourself that's a shortcut that you might be taking. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, you're not entrusting your comrades in actually doing something. And when you don't, you know, when you don't entrust them, when you don't give them work to do or, or when you can't trust them to do it, then, like, uh, you're taking a shortcut that will end up killing your whole thing in the end, right? You can't actually win mm-hmm. if people are not even willing to, like, make an agenda for a meeting or, or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, don't take any shortcuts. Uh, develop capacity in the sense that, like, you actually have to convince people to do stuff. And, like, I mean, when it comes to organizing, like, that's – that's the work of organizing, right? Is like using whatever influence you have to expand and grow your network of influence so that you can actually get something done. Um, it's tough, but it is the whole thing. <laughs> That's the whole point. Right. Yeah. Oh, and the other piece of that too is like, it really matters whether or not the responsibility that's entrusted to others is something that is like, like it would be bad if, this didn't go well, (laughs) like something that has stakes. Right. Um, and I think that goes in two directions. Like for, I think for some personalities, it's harder to offload those responsibilities. Uh, I'll confess that's my situation. Like I would rather do something Mm -hmm. myself because it's like, I don't know, then I'll know that it's done and (laughs) I'll do it the way I want it. And if I fail at it, I have nobody to be upset with but myself. Right. But like, it's actually very important to resist that impulse and like create all kinds of mentoring opportunities uh, and to allow other people to help you figure out what you're doing wrong and so on. And I think there's like the, the inverse kind of personality type, which is like, you know, maybe having some reticence to take on that responsibility in an organizing movement and like, being able to step up and be like, okay, I know that I maybe don't know everything there is to know about this, but like I have the will to figure it out. Also super important. Yeah, yeah definitely. All right. So you have all of that. We've, we've talked through it all so far, laying the groundwork, identifying issues, creating strategy, developing tactics, um, you know, developing capacity for people to like get those tasks done. And then I think like there's another step that is not the end, but it's like a checkpoint maybe we could just call it like closing the loop or something, right? Like determine if what you're doing is working at all. And if it's not, 
then maybe do more planning. I mean, the case is probably, is it doing, if you're asking the question, is it working? It probably isn't, right? <laughs> or uh, <laughs> if it is working, it's not working in exactly the way that you'd like, or maybe, you know, you need to kind of like return, uh, return to some of the premises or the, you know, the structures of knowledge that you've already created and kind of like revisit those and, and reconfigure them or something. Um, you know, this is like, I, I guess this is like, um, how to work out the theory and practice continuum, right? Like the, the thing is that, you know, you read some theory, you try to put it into practice and then you kind of have to go back to the drawing board and be like, well, did the theory work? Did the, did, did the strategy we have make any sense? Did the way that we develop tactics make any sense? Did we power map wrong? Is there actually more people involved in this than we thought, right? And, and you have to go back and kind of like close that loop that you'd, you'd been working through and then maybe start again or reconfigure or, or something like that. Yeah, I think that is also super important just to find time to uh, evaluate. And maybe the the inverse side of that, too, is like you said, if you're asking, is it working? Maybe there's kind of a sub <laughs> sub issue that like the answer is no. And so you have to figure it out. But uh, also when things do go well, it's important to celebrate as well. Right. Like even something as simple as we did the letter writing campaign and like <laughs> sent the letters and so on. It's important to have uh, space for the people who actually tried to do that to like pat themselves and each other on the yeah. back. Right. That's like a thing people on the left are actually kind of bad at, in my experience, uh, being able to celebrate those moments of achievement, even when they're not finally achieving. But, uh, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword because you don't want to, like, uh, pop the confetti and stuff when nothing has really happened. But at the same time, um, being able to create that feeling that, like, it's an achievement just to get a lot of people to do something together, like, again, that just builds a, a kind of foundation to get further. And I think that's really important to combat that sort of cynicism, doomerism, um, feeling like there's nothing anybody can do. It's like, yeah, I don't know. A lot of these things are, you know, they stop short. They're, they're not revolutionary changes, but like they, they're the things that are going to create the building blocks for transformative change elsewhere. And if you can't kind of, uh, get together and be happy about like kicking the ball a little bit further down the road, then you're probably never going to kick it that far in the first place. Yeah, totally. Um, something I talked about, I think on last week's episode was, uh, this group, uh, West Virginia rising who blockaded, uh, a power plant that's kind of like related to Joe Manchin in some ways. And I keep kind of coming back to that idea cause I think it was really inspiring and pretty well executed by them. Um, so let's see if you don't remember this group of people, they are mad at Joe Manchin because he keeps sort of blocking climate change legislation as well as everything else on the planet. Whatever. We all know Joe Manchin at this point. We, we all know him. <laughs> we all don't like him. It's fine. Anyways, um, what's cool, though, is that they had this like blockade. It was like this kind of great moment. Um, all these people came together. It got a lot of media attention. And that was awesome. Um, especially when it comes to pressuring a, you know, a public figure like a like a senator, you need press to kind of like cover it and create the uh, the sense that there's actually a problem or to represent that there's actually a problem. Um, but now they're kind of taking another step and they're doing a sit in somewhere and, you know, it, it's kind of expanding beyond just this blockade. And I think that's really cool because, like, I, I think what was neat about it is that, like, they they recognize that the tactic was good, right? Blockading this coal plant so that Joe Manchin loses out on some money. That's awesome and a good idea, right? It's kind of like finding a lever that they know will <laughs> make him upset and pull it. 
And the, the but the limitation is that like the tactic is only a day long. So okay, there's obviously a a, a sense in which it, it worked because it created a stink for one day. Uh, it got a lot of attention and like that's good. And now like they're kind of revisiting that and like so being obstructionist because he's also an obstructionist is like a, a good look for them. So now they're gonna take it a step further, mm-hmm. right? They're 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 looking at what they've done and now they're trying to develop like that into a, a different strategy or a, a little bit of a different tactic to see if they can get any more um you know, any more uh, media attention, any more pressure. I, I just think it's a good it's a good example because it's people who are um, you know, they did something kind of a, at the grassroots level, just a, a group of people, and now they are thinking about it pretty critically, and now they're going to do something again that's kind of similar but different in some ways, kind of meeting the uh, meeting the occasion where, where they find it. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's that flexibility improvisation yeah. that's so important to organizing, right? Just being able to take things as they come and, and pivot as necessary, uh, and those are also maybe intuitions that hopefully you develop over time, right? Trying to find out um, where are the pressure points and how can you uh, keep pushing them. Um, I think maybe as we're rounding at the end here, <laughs> we said we were going to return to the question of like, why is it important to mobilize faith communities? But I, I don't know. I feel like it's probably obvious. <laughs> There's a lot of people yeah, there. Exactly right? <laughs> they get together. They, they hear uh, moral stuff every Sunday. And um, there are people who ostensibly at least are trying to do something important with their lives. Right. They're, I mean, the pump is primed for, for like doing yeah. something right. You, you hear a sermon about how you should care about the poor or about whatever. And then like, and then what, right? You have to take the next step. So there are people who are like, they should yeah. be raring to go. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is there are, are all kinds of experiments. I mean, we've talked about on the show before, like experiments in how to do something with the church, right? Like we've talked about uh, Christians involved in mutual aid stuff or like what Ryan Cagle is doing out with his wild Jubilee <laughs> church practice thing going on, right? Community kitchens and... Um, giving people food and and so on, like the church can become a kind of uh, uh, organizing space in and of itself to give people a taste of some other kind of world, a more just world and so on. And I think it's like, you know, for most of us, most of us probably don't go to like Ryan Cagle's wild, extremely cool eschatological communist church, right? We go to, (laughs) well, I go to a parish full of extremely well-meaning, very good, nice people. And it's like, how do we work together in order to, uh, you know, figure out how to make use of our constituency, how to pressure a local politician, how to, um, you know, maybe obstruct uh, an unjust situation, how to make sure people don't get evicted from their tents in a park, whatever it might be. Um, Trying to figure out how to mobilize all those people who are already going to a church on a Sunday is like a really hard formula to crack, but uh, it's also one that is like, I don't know, historically extremely important and uh, one that maybe listeners of this podcast (laughs) probably have unique uh, investments in. So I think it's important just to start uh, somewhere and see where it goes. That's right. So you're planning on going to the UK this summer. You're going to go to the Nazareth of (laughs) England in Welshingham, UK, and see the great shrine there, but not the Catholic one, the Anglican one. And what I'm trying to tell you here is that you shouldn't. Stay home. Save your money. Don't fly <laughs> to the UK to do that. Instead, talk to the people at your church about <laughs> what they're upset about and maybe what you can do. It's a good... Be the Walshingham of your own <laughs> Be the Nazareth of your own community. Be the Walshingham you want to see in the world. That's it. <laughs> That's all you need to be doing. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you'd like to sponsor Matt's big trip to <laughs> Washington, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, and we'll make sure that he gets a few statues and brings them home for I got for a box full of them. I'm, I'm tired um, of looking at them all. <laughs> that's right they're exhausting uh you can talk more about organizing with other christians at our discord which you can get to through our patreon and so on um our music is by amari armstrong and our outro is by the illogical spoon we'll see you next week Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, I would have 